Hey friend, I'm Aristasia. Welcome to Passion and Potential Podcast. I'm a creative business owner that followed my heart, learned some things the hard way, and created a passionate career for myself. At 22 years old, I quit my marketing job to start my business in a new city with no friends, no experience, and a whole lot of emotional baggage. I'm using the lessons I've learned in life and business to inspire you to embrace your passions, discover your full potential, and chase your dreams in life. Now, let's get on with the episode. Hello, welcome to Holy Baloney, my 50th podcast episode. I'm so freaking excited because that means I'm halfway to 100. (laughs) And so I promised myself I would celebrate the milestones along the way of that big goal of getting to 100 podcast episodes. So if you follow me on social media, you'll see that I created a cute video where I popped champagne and I celebrated 50 episodes. (laughs) In honor of my 50th, I thought it might be time to share an intro episode where I officially introduce myself, my story, my journey, the whole bit. (laughs) I've shared little pieces of me throughout this podcast, you know, monumental moments, career changes, breakups, therapy, etc. And of course, I've used my personal experiences in life and business to inspire and educate my listeners. But I've never quite dove into the full story of me and my life. So in this episode, you're going to learn a lot about me and all the things that have made me me. (laughs) You'll learn a lot about my upbringing. I'm going to discuss trauma. I'm going to discuss mental health. I'm going to discuss kind of this journey of going from a very emotional anxiety, trauma-induced child who really didn't have much hope for life to wanting to drop out of high school to then having this glimmer of I can find passions in life and I can make something beautiful for my life. I had, you'll see me or you'll listen to me walk through this journey of having no hope to then finally having hope. And it's very, it's going to be deep, (laughs) to be honest. I believe that my childhood and my growing years play this huge role into just why I'm so passionate about life and so passionate about chasing my dreams and very, very passionate about inspiring others to also chase their dreams. And why I'm so passionate about like self-help and development and helping people I think a lot of that really does stem from just my growing years and all that came with that. (laughs) In episode 39 with Jess Pats, she talks a lot about owning your story. And she shares a very vulnerable story about coming out of a domestic abuse marriage. And it got me thinking, I think owning my story, like Jess Pat's talked about has probably been a very tough challenge for me. It took me years to even remotely accept parts of my life, let alone openly talk about them. And I was very inspired about her willingness to share such a hard 
story in a difficult part in her life. So when I was thinking about why, why do I struggle with owning my story and sharing it? I think there's a couple of reasons. One, a lot of the deep parts of my story have been a very emotional part of my heart. And it wasn't until a few years ago that I learned, hey, feelings are normal. <laughs> Even icky ones. It's okay to have icky feelings. You're allowed to be sad. You're allowed to feel grief or anger or excitement. And, and so growing up, I did a lot of suppressing and, and ignoring. And now, obviously, I actively every day work towards not doing that. I think additionally, I spent most of my life trying to be the positive girl who brought positivity into other people's lives. And I do love that quality about me because I still do try and be that. I always say I want to be sunshine in someone's life. But I think by doing that, I created this narrative in my mind that if I share my story or if I share, you know, a difficult part of my life or journey, someone might not feel joy from that. And it might not make their day sunnier. And so I, I, I'll just keep that to myself. Hey, let's only focus on the good. Look at me. I'm an optimist. I'll bring you joy. Only, only talk about good. And then lastly, I think also because I spent a lot of time not literally quite not owning my story. It was almost like if I fully accepted it, there was potential that it could hurt me again. Or that the limiting beliefs and fears I had in my head surrounding those hardships and insecurities would somehow become true. I understand that like that kind of now sounds ridiculous, <laughs> seeing as all of this is in the past and I'm literally living proof that I overcame those hardships. But I think when I was younger, I was kind of in like survival mode and I was like, I really don't want this life for me. I don't want this for my future self. So if I put myself into the overly optimistic state of mind of these things aren't happening to me, they won't, then they won't be me. <laughs> so even as an adult, I have to constantly remind myself to not gaslight myself and to accept every part of my chapter books. Good, bad, challenging, not challenging, exciting, whatever. I have to accept them. So I know this sounds kind of confusing, so just bear with me. <laughs> I will get to the actual part of the story, but I just felt this need to like almost... I don't know, give context as to why I've never done this and kind of just give this context of how this is a little bit challenging to do, but that's okay. If you remember podcast episode number one, I have talked about my perfectionism issues and how starting the podcast was a challenge to do because I was scared I would fail at it. So, hey, I'm going to share my story and it is what it is. I'm doing it. <laughs> so because I've never done a start to current day episode before, I'm going to break this up into like sections chapters, if you will, <laughs> so that I don't ramble for 80 hours, but also so that I'm able to dive a little bit deeper into some of these monumental moments and explain them without feeling like this episode is going to be 80 billion hours. <laughs> so I'm going to break it up into childhood and family, which will move into adolescent years, like junior high, high school, and then I'll move into becoming an adult in the years of chasing my dreams and opening my business. And yep, I will be fully transparent and share all of the messiness that came with my 20s because I really was just a lost little squirrel jumping around without a clue of how to do life and how to love myself in life. <laughs> so that being said, all that messiness has though in return brought me to be the unapologetic, passionate, healthier version of myself that I am currently today. 
at 29 years old. So this specific intro episode, we're going to go way back. Way, way, way back. We're going to go back to five years old. Because that's when I realized I have some of my earliest monumental memories. That's, that's like what sticks out to me right away. So my childhood. Oh boy. <laughs> oh gosh. I had a very unconventional childhood. It was interesting, honestly. Like I, I will say that. It was interesting. <laughs> we were a very, very chaotic family. If you were to ever see the show Shameless, then there you have it. <laughs> that's my family. My friends to this day crack up every time they watch it and they'll just send me pictures of Fiona and be like, watching you on the TV right now. I'm like, thanks guys. <laughs> so yes, chaos. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of dysfunction, a lot of abandonment, a lot of instability. There was abuse. There was addiction, a lot of addiction. Um, but of course with any childhood, there's a lot of good moments too. And I hold on to those dearly. So as I'm telling this story of my life, please keep in mind that it was not all bad. <laughs> and I still, to this day, do not hold on to the bad. If anything, I kind of have to put myself in check and remind myself that there actually was bad because, like I said earlier, I did a lot of suppressing of feelings. <laughs> so yeah, just keep in mind, I'm going to talk about monument monumental moments that may have been challenging, but they are monumental because I do feel like they've really shaped me into me. And I do think they've played a big role in finding myself, in understanding my mental health, my triggers, my attachment styles, my relationships, my work ethic. You get it. So finally, moving on into the story. <laughs> I was born the second child. I have an older brother. We're only two years apart. Absolute best friends growing up. Honestly, we still are. Well, at the age of five, that would all change. And we were no longer going to be a family of four, which was mom, dad, me, and brother. I remember my mom and dad coming home and saying, you're getting two new siblings tonight. And we were like, what? Like, obviously we're confused because my mom wasn't pregnant. And it's like, we've never heard of this before. What do you mean we're just getting two new siblings? <laughs> I'm so confused. Well, long story long, and I do say long story long because it is kind of long. <laughs> the state called my mom and said, are you interested in taking custody of a one-year-old in a three-year-old. Their biological mother is an addict. We found them living in a car. Oh, by the way, these babies are related to you. They're your great niece and great nephew. So, meaning my mom was their biological mom's aunt. I.e., these babies were technically my second cousins. Try and keep up, you'll learn my family tree is very confusing. <laughs> so all in all, my mom and dad decided to give both these kids a chance. I remember when my siblings arrived at a young age, so I was only five, and I learned a lot of things that you probably don't usually learn at five. So my baby sister's head was completely flat from never being picked up and from literally living in a backseat of a car. And the three-year-old, my younger brother, was and still is 100% deaf due to the drug use. They were malnourished. They had very clear trauma. Um, they were just in really rough shape physically and emotionally. And so I think if I had to pinpoint a time in my life where I was probably, it was very evident that I was growing up at a very young age, I would say we'll probably go ahead and start here. Because the whole dynamic change, it went from being 
youngest child, so little sister, to now oldest sister. But the thing is, I loved being an older sister. I wanted to help take care of my new siblings. And I fully, fully understood what the situation was that they were coming from. My parents told us everything. So at five years old, I was learning about heroin use and the effects of drugs. I was learning about how drugs can cause someone to literally lose their hearing for the rest of their life. I was learning why they had to come live with us as a whole. Like There was a lot to that story. So all in all, I think at age five, I kind of learned how to be a mini mom. And I do think that my mom really helped instill that empathy in me. And to this day, I'm a very empathic, empathetic person. A big, big heart, sometimes to a fault. But I, I, I want to say it probably does stem a little bit from this. But it probably stems from my childhood and learning at a young age to be compassionate and understand someone's situation. So I'm going to stick on this train of explaining my sibling situation. Later on, we'll get into other elements of my childhood. But like I said, I think if I were to pinpoint a moment where I was very much so shaped, I would have to say this. So fast forward a few years, my mom gets a call from the state again. <laughs> Could you please spare it in you to take custody of one more child? He's a baby boy and he's the biological brother of the other two children you decided to take custody of. We don't want to send him into the system. My parents really were not at a place to do this. Their relationship was rocky, financially not doing so hot. We were moving around all the time. I'll get to those parts of the story later on. But they did decide to start taking visitations with the baby boy and give him a chance and give him some chance at a home life in some relationship with his other siblings. So I was, I was ecstatic about this. I remember that first day of meeting him vividly. Like, I could pinpoint it. I loved the idea of having another baby sibling. And I 100% really latched on to my new baby brother. And I kind of became a mother figure for him. I would take him everywhere. I would stroller him up and down the streets. I would change his diapers. I would feed him. I would get up with him in the middle of the night. I wholeheartedly remember wanting to help this baby. And I think I was like seven years old at the time. I was, I was still pretty young, maybe eight. <laughs> so the hard part about this, though, was that we were only getting visitations with him. We didn't have full custody. And he did still have a guardian that he lived with. So we would get... You know, we would get to keep this baby boy for a weekend. And then come Monday morning, we had to drive him to Cleveland and essentially hand him over to his other family. <laughs> so every time we did this, I mean, it was a full-blown meltdown. Everyone was crying. He was screaming. He would run to the door, beating on it, begging us to stay, reaching for us. And it was, oh, it was just awful. To this day, I remember it like it's yesterday. And it would just result in a lot of sobbing. And I just remember begging my mom, please, please, please find a way for him to come live with us. I think additionally, it caused a lot of worry because his guardian at the time wasn't really in a good place to be one. She was a very old woman. There were some other issues there. And yeah, so it just caused a lot of anxiety and worry in all parts. But over time, thank goodness, we did finally end up getting custody of him. And he became a part of our family permanently. 
So this leaves me with five siblings who to this day I have the utmost love for and so much care for and I'm so grateful they were brought into my life. So grateful, despite the very unconventional way that they were. I wish I could change that for them. I wish they didn't have to deal with that trauma and the abandonment and all of that that came with it. But nonetheless, my siblings are my siblings. I would never think of them in any other way. To this day, I don't refer to them as adopted siblings. They're just my siblings. You'll never hear me say that. I'm sharing this part of my story, but not many people even know this. Like, because I would never say this is my adopted sister. Nope, they're just my family. That is it. Okay. All right, so here we are. We have siblings. We have custody of all three. Well, fast forward a little bit, and we would learn that that may not be the case anymore. I'm not going to go into crazy long detail, but eventually we would find out that their biological mom wanted to fight to take them back and have custody, full custody of them, and it resulted in court cases. It was not a good situation for any parties. I think it was really traumatizing for the kids. It was obviously not by any means easy on the family. We were spending, you know, weekly basis in court. She still wasn't sober, so like that was an additional layer of literal panic at the thought of, you know, us losing them to a home that could harm them. The kids were pretty young, so they kind of knew what was happening, but I'm just not sure if they fully understood the severity of it. I have asked my sister her her thoughts on that and she said she remembers the moments, but not like quite understanding them. And all in all, this was just resulted in a lot of anxiety. I think it resulted in abandonment issues because I was always in a state of mind of, will my siblings get taken away? Will these humans I deeply care for leave? Do I no longer have this family? And this is of course, in addition to other family issues with my parents and whatnot. At one point, the court granted supervised and unsupervised visits with their biological mom. And I think my parents had good intentions with this, but maybe it probably wasn't the best idea. <laughs> they would send me to the visitations to essentially protect the kids. And they would tell me, you know, keep an eye, make sure that they're all right. Let us know if there's anything to be worried about. Let us know if she arrives high which that did happen. And, and like I said, I think my parents had good intentions because they were just trying to protect the kids. But all in all, I was also still a kid. So I took on this pressure of, I am essentially in charge of the result of this. Like what if something bad happens to them while I'm here, that's my fault. What if I miss something and then something bad happens? What if my siblings get taken away and I could have done something about it, maybe at these visitations? So it like kind of instilled this, this in, inherent um, fear and worry that I was going to be at fault for something bad happening to them. And I think it is pretty obvious that this was like severe anxiety in a child. I was failing all my classes at school. I would have like literal panic attack meltdowns at school. I 
and I of course would lie about why <laughs> I didn't want people to know but then people would know because social workers would pull us in and out of class on a weekly basis and they'd have to interrogate us in the office and ask us like these very uh, deep questions of has this ever happened has this ever happened and it was just a lot for a child and it absolutely makes sense why I struggled with mental health and why even as an adult I am now still overcoming abandonment issues and why I have had such a rocky journey with anxiety and the control factor that comes with anxiety because at a young age, I put pressure on myself. I didn't know I was doing it. I don't even think my parents knew they were doing it. But essentially to control the outcome of a situation. And that gave me such severe anxiety that I could not control it. I, I didn't know how to. I was just a kid. At the end of the day, can anyone? So that is a, absolutely a big puzzle piece in terms of that. And hey, at least I understand it. I, I get it now. It all kind of makes sense. Now, eventually, the court cases did stop. The custody battle did stop. Their biological mother decided to not pursue guardianship of them. And they got to remain with our family. We kept custody. They remained in our family the rest of all the years. <laughs> all right. So now that I've kind of summarized a little bit of my sibling story and how that was and how, like, that has shaped me into being a caretaker, a very empathetic person, but also a very anxious person who struggles with mental health. I have to back it up a notch and give some insight to the family as a whole, not just my siblings and just our living conditions as a whole. So we did not have a lot of money. We moved a lot. My dad never really kept a job. We burnt bridges in every home we lived in. We got evicted a lot. There was just never a sense of stability. And my parents absolutely had a toxic relationship together. It was bad. There was abuse. There was narcissism. There was abandonment. There was infidelity. There was overall a pretty deep layer of emotional and physical hardship that affected every single person. To this day, <laughs> the sound of a slamming door will literally just like trigger me. And if a man raises his voice at me, I promise you I'll probably spiral into a panic attack. So I've worked through that in therapy. <laughs> so I think you can kind of get the idea there. I actually did block out quite a lot of the moments of abuse because it's, it was just very hard for me. I think as, as a kid, it's like you don't want to think of that. And you don't want to think of a person as a bad person or a villain. And so I've been working through that with therapy, but... I, of course, do have specific memories, feelings, triggers that give context and are very obvious as to what was going on. So that's just some backstory that will come into play later and will absolutely play a role in this journey of mine. Okay, so moving on a little bit deeper there. Dad and mom. Oh, boy. <laughs> like I said, my parents had a very toxic relationship. And throughout all these years, from the youngest age I can remember to literally adulthood now. <laughs> um, my dad was just coming in and out of life. Sometimes because of the toxic marriage, sometimes because of reasons I don't know, maybe I don't want to know. I just remember lots of leaving, lots of showing back up, etc. And then eventually he did become a truck driver, so he was 
on the roads all the time as far as I know. I think he was working. <laughs> I don't know. So I think if I were to pinpoint the absolute most significant moment of, yep, that girl's got abandonment issues, it would be those situations with my dad, but very specifically when my dad would be on the road. It, I, I wouldn't see him for months, and I'd overhear my mom talking and saying he's coming home, and I'm not kidding you, oh goodness. I went into daddy's girl begging for love and craving any bit of attention or care. And I was young and I was probably like 11 years old and I'd be in the kitchen baking him a cake that said like, welcome home daddy. And then I would make him dinner to come home to. And I would try my best to all in all give him any reason to want to stay. And I think I really tried to fix that. Like I said, I had fixing issues and control issues. <laughs> um, and so I really tried to fix that, as many kids do who suffer from their parents' relationship. And, you know, a lot of people, they'll, a lot of kids, they'll, they'll kind of take it onto themselves and say, why won't you stay? Why won't you work things out? Why can't you stay for me? Is it my fault? So that obviously played a pretty big role in the abandonment issues, but also my confidence in my self-love, in my self-worth, because at a young age, I was internalizing this narrative that I wasn't loved or that I couldn't be loved and that it was, that, like, I wasn't good enough to be loved. That there was something wrong with me or I wasn't worth it enough to be loved or for him to stay. <laughs> so I'd make these cakes and then he wouldn't show. Or I'd make the cakes and then he would show. <laughs> But nothing came of it except for a huge blowout fight between him and my mom and him slamming things and then saying he's going to the bar. And I don't know, then I wouldn't see him for another six months and that would be the note that he left on. And so yeah, cue the very deep abandonment issues <laughs> internalized at a young age. So now we're at the part of the story where shit hits the fan. <laughs> the trucker job turned into an escape and an abandonment of family and eventually a divorce with my mother. During this time, my mom fell into a very deep depression. And I think she, I think she just honestly lost sight of any hope. She stayed in her room with dark curtains, rarely came out, really struggled with mental health. And we could see that just kind of like plummeting in front of us. So I was about, 12 at this age <laughs> and I became mom like literally I became mom so every day I'd wake up at 6 a.m and I'd make the kids lunches and then I'd get them ready for school and I'd do their homework with them all while still also trying to be a child and lord knows not even knowing how to do my own homework like I was so behind in school I at one point they really wanted to hold me back and I just remember like begging them, like, please don't like tutor me, do anything, but just please don't hold me back. Um, and yeah, I just did really bad in school, probably for obvious reasons. And I think that that also took a huge toll on my confidence because I did need tutors, but then even the tutors couldn't help. Like I just didn't understand <laughs> or I was so distracted. And so maybe dealing with life stuff that I couldn't understand. I was having regular panic attacks and crying meltdowns over stuff at home. But I also didn't want people to know about what was going on at home. 
So I would lie about why I was crying. And like literally the kids in class would be like, what's wrong? And I would just pretend. I, I remember one time I lied to my, I lied and I said I watched Titanic. <laughs> and my friends were like, you're crying because you watched Titanic yesterday? And I was like, yeah, like it just, I'm still sad about it. But no, I was like literally crying about my family. <laughs> oh my God. So I would just like put on my happy face and pretend I had this beautiful, perfect family because I just didn't want people to know. And, and I think that that is very evident as I mentioned at the start of this podcast episode when I said that I did a lot of in denial and I didn't own my story because it's like, like I said, if I owned it, I felt like it would shape me in a way that I didn't want it to. So around age 13, my mom wakes us up in a panic in the middle of the night and says, pack all your things. It's time to go. We're moving. And she drops me and my siblings off at this new house. <laughs> she tells me, watch your siblings. Me and your brother are going to finish moving. At that time, I, I kind of assumed that we got evicted again. Because <laughs> like I said, growing up wasn't exactly stable. Now that I'm older, I know it's because my mom wanted to move to a home that my dad did not know of and that he had zero ties to. She was finally escaping my dad. Which, by the way, keep in mind, um, they're still not divorced. They're just separated. But it was her way of, of like restarting over. So now I'm at the age of like entering junior high. And by ninth grade, things only got worse. My mom fell into her very deep depression again and she had an upstairs loft in this new house that I just remember it was just dark there was never a light turned on and there was never a curtain opened and it was really hard for her to leave that dark loft um and because we were officially without my dad we were even more poor than before <laughs> you know my mom wasn't working and we're we're living in a house with five kids, no income, no working people in the house. <laughs> I remember it'd be middle of winter and we wouldn't have heat. There would not be hot water. And so I would try and wash my hair and I would jump into the ice cold shower in our, <laughs> in our house in the middle of winter that also didn't have heat. And I'd just be like, suck it up, suck it up. You've got to wash your hair. <laughs> but because we didn't really have any parental structure um you know my mom living upstairs and going through her dark time dad just peaced out the house was chaos I mean it was literal chaos like you couldn't see the floor due to it being so dirty and messy there was a lot of hoarding in the house it was filled with a lot of junk we never had clean dishes bathrooms were bad I mean you get the idea you, I don't think I have to go into too much detail with that one and so it was just all in all like this challenging environment across every board. <laughs> so I finally reached a point where I decided I didn't want to go to school anymore. You know, school wasn't exactly pushed as a huge priority as it was, but now I'm going into my early teenage years and I'm not seeing hope. Things are rough and I'm just not seeing hope. And I think I stumbled into my own teenage depression. And I just didn't see a purpose of going to school. My grades were awful. 
I was at a new school where I didn't know anyone. I was the, <laughs> the poor kid without hot water. And I just didn't see a point to going to school. And then obviously I, I would go to school and because that wasn't a positive environment to escape home, I would then come home to a lot of sadness and dysfunction and it just wasn't, it wasn't the cherry on top. So I eventually told my mom, hey, I want to drop out. And I was like 14 years old. I was in ninth grade, so. And she says, okay, you can. But before you do, uh, give school one more chance. We'll go to a new school. I'm going to try and get you into open enrollment and make you, maybe you'll like it better there. So we end up moving again. And my mom like tries dating for the first time after my dad. Things are kind of looking up a little bit and I decide to give this school a chance. I tell my mom, all right, I'll give it a chance, but if I don't like it, I'm dropping out. <laughs> Isn't this crazy and ironic when you when you think about this because I was almost a, a dropout at age 14 and now I'm a business owner. It's just interesting. <laughs> so things got a little better for a while. I was now at a really small school so I had more opportunities there and I could be a part of extracurricular activities, which gave me a little bit more purpose. Cause like I said, I was never good at like actual classes. <laughs> like my grades weren't great, but if I could find a way to still be excited to go to school, even if it meant like to do volleyball or to do theater, that gave me a little bit of hope to go to school and maybe to try even harder in those classes so that I could do those. Cause obviously you can't be failing in order to be a part of sports or whatnot. Um, my mom was seemed to be coming out of her depression. All of us were like kind of starting over and new. My mom was no longer dating that boyfriend because he ended up going to prison. <laughs> Much like my dad. <laughs> so I think at that point though, like, the abandonment issues were like already there. So when he left, I just kind of was like, okay, another one leaves. It is what it is. I was sad when he left because I did really care about him and we did kind of form a friendship. But when he did left, leave, I was like, I guess almost numb. <laughs> I was just like numb to people leaving. I was just like, you're not gonna spiral over this. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> but that was also probably just suppressing. I think I actually deep down was pretty upset that he went to prison. <laughs> but Anywho, mom seems to be coming out of her depression. We're starting over new. I was finding purpose in school. I joined theater, cheerleading, volleyball. And I decide I'm going to stay in school. I do want to graduate. Maybe, dare I say, I might go to college one day. <laughs> hey, friend. Quick reminder. I'm offering a free business building mentoring session with me. In this session, we analyze your goals and dreams and create an actionable plan to make them a reality. I'll give you a very specific to-do list to follow, and I'll put into perspective the baby steps that are required to move forward in building your business. We'll talk mindset and confidence, and I promise you'll leave our session feeling inspired and with some fire to finally cross those goals off. Head over to passionandpotentialpodcast.com slash businessbuilding to sign up or just click the link in the show notes. At this time, my brother actually had already dropped out of high school because we, like I said, we didn't have anyone to pay for bills. My mom wasn't working and my dad pieced out. So my brother dropped out of high school to literally work and pay for the family. And I 
I give him my major, major props. Like that was an incredible thing to do for your family and to do for your siblings especially. And update, by the way, my brother is freaking slaying at life. He got his GED and then he graduated top of his nursing class um, and got a nursing degree and now works in nursing. So we're good. We're good. <laughs> but yeah, there was some light there. I had some hope and things kind of seemed like they could be achievable. Like I could do something, even if it was just the bare minimum of graduating high school. I think I can graduate high school. <laughs> now during all this, of course, there was the usual dysfunction and instability. Very, very poor still. Dad was still dad. He would dip in and out. He's now onto a new relationship, which he like randomly calls me one day and says, hey, I'm living in Florida now and I'm married. <laughs> yeah, normal teenage struggles. But I think I was able to somewhat turn my focus away from the negative things happening. And like I said, find hope in potentially good things. And I think at the time I had good intentions, kind of like survival intentions. But looking hindsight, especially after therapy, I do realize I was absolutely disassociating and suppressing everything negative. Hence why, like I said, I never owned my story. But you don't know what you don't know especially when you're just a 15 year old, just trying to get through. In high school, I was absolutely the cheesy optimist. <laughs> I and that really is just me. I, as I literally just giggled and laughed. Like I am a very optimist uh, or optimistic person, a very bubbly. I really am like a pretty happy person. But I do remember one of my friends in my class, you know, he was like, Anastasia, I bet your life is perfect. Like. I bet you don't even know what drugs or alcohol are. And I just remember accidentally, like very bluntly, honestly, looking at him dead in the face and going, my dad's a severe alcoholic. And then I was like, oh my God, did I just say that out loud? And he was like, what? I never would have guessed that. Like, you're so positive and optimistic. And so, yeah, I was very positive and optimistic, but like I've said 10 billion times, I was also suppressing, disassociating, and also putting on this front of this is my life, this is my story, when in reality, my story was something completely different. Of course, I was a vulnerable 15-year-old, so why would I tell people all of that? God, no. But here I am, I'm about to be 30, and I'm just now, for the first time ever, opening up. And I think that makes sense. Like, looking back at that memory, it stands out to me, him just saying that and then me accidentally going my dad's a severe alcoholic <laughs> but all in all in high school I really think I started to learn things about myself because like I said before that I was very hopeless I just didn't see a purpose but now that I was finding purpose it's like I think I think I'm starting to find passions and I was always you know I always said I was going to be a photographer but I think due to my, you know, mental health and just my overall conditions, I maybe, I probably didn't think that was realistic, seeing as I didn't even think I could graduate high school. <laughs> so I knew that like, there, like looking back, of course there was passions in there, but I don't think that I really started to develop them or realize that passions could be a part of me and my life and my future until I started to see hope. And until I went to that new school 
and kind of got out of that very low depression of I am worthless. So during my senior year of high school, I have now raised my GPA to, I think like maybe a 3.0. And I just, I'm figuring it out. And I remember the guidance counselor calls me into his office and I've shared this part on some of my other podcasts. I talk about it in my art journey, but the guidance counselor calls me into his office and he says, Aristasia, you don't have an art credit and you're not going to graduate without one. So here I am like, oh my God, am I ever going to be able to graduate? I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm just destined to not. And so he's like, I'm going to put you in an, in an art class so that you can have this by time, you know, you graduate in the next six months or whatever it was. And I'm like, okay, sounds fine. Sounds good. And I joined this art class and it was just like basic art, but I very quickly learned I love art. I think I like to do this. And it became a very therapeutic and healthy coping mechanism for me because I would, you know, no matter what was going on at home or what was going on in relationships, of course, I had a high school boyfriend, so it's like, you know, you're just fighting every day. (laughs) No matter what was going on, it was like art brought me this sense of peace and this sense of calming but it also excited me and I and I wanted to try it and I wanted to do more things and so you'll learn as I share my story that art actually ends up being this full circle layer of my journey it actually ends up being the reason why I was able to get my first digital DSLR camera and then obviously that snowballs into owning a business And then here I am, you know, 10 years later, running a business that stemmed from photography, which actually was made possible from art. Oh my goodness. So this is a fun part of the story where things start to really pivot. And you're going to see this version of me start to break through barriers and start to realize that I could have a life and I can make something of myself and it didn't matter what I came from and it didn't matter what abuse was dealt, what trauma was dealt. Yes, the mental health stuff mattered and it plays a huge role in into why it took me so many years to get to places that probably could have been, you know, made possible much quicker. But all in all, the mental health issues didn't prohibit me from chasing my dreams. So that's going to be chapter two. I think that, like I said, I had to break this up. So now you kind of have this understanding of this is my childhood. This is my upbringing. But because of my childhood and upbringing, it kind of makes sense why I'm so, so, so passionate about chasing my dreams and helping other people chase their dreams. Because at the end of the end of the day, it's like we have one life. And I've seen a lot people in my life not love life I've seen them hate it and I've seen them have no purpose or believe in themselves enough to find purpose and it really kind of shaped this very passionate person that you're listening to on this podcast right now because of that I 
am so passionate about life and I'm so passionate about making something of myself when in reality at one point in time I didn't think I was worth anything. And I think it's just insane to just look at this from a very like aerial perspective of the growth of understanding myself and overcoming the challenges to still follow things and that bring me joy and create a life that could be passionate. So obviously recording this like was not easy. <laughs> if you couldn't catch on to the millions of times I felt the need to explain myself, it it's not easy. I this is my first time ever truly opening up about these things and I but you know what I told myself I promised myself I would do things that are difficult and I would get comfortable in being uncomfortable. And I think if I can use my story to hopefully inspire someone else and to help someone else realize something beautiful about them or realize that they can have potential, then I've done what I said I wanted to do with this podcast. So like I said, this is part one. I will be releasing part two and three. Stick around for it. If you liked this episode, please, by all means, let me know or share it with a friend. That is the best way you can help me grow is just by sharing. You can always tag me on Instagram. You'll find me at Aristasia, A-R-A-S-T-A-S-I-A. And don't forget, I'm offering that free business building mentoring session. So if you'd like some help with creating a dream of yours and you want some advice and input and education, I'm offering that. So by all means, click the link in my show notes and we'll go from there. That being said, till next time, my friends.